The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost, grant us by that same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in its consolation. Through Christ our Lord, Amen. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I am Thomas Nagley. I'm here with Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V, and he also serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in North Florida, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Great, Father. Great to be here. Yeah, it's good to see you. Good yes. to see you in a, in a new setting, right? Yes, Father. We uh, continue to make improvements. So. Yes, I'd say so. We'll be Got some professional help. That's right. Very grateful for that. We asked for any uh, feedback from our viewers too. If there are uh, All right, yeah. any uh, any suggestions, any thoughts, we'd be mm -hmm. we'd be happy to hear them. So well, I picked up a few over the weekend in my travels. So okay. we do take them seriously. So yeah. well, Father, um, several things on the agenda for tonight. Though um, first, could I ask for any prayer requests that you have? Well, I just got word that uh, Nellie Brown passed away. God rest her and uh, her husband. Uh, please pray for Ralph too. Uh, Nellie, long-time parishioner, Holy Nativity, uh, very dear soul, and um, I know she'll be missed. Um, very fine children, many, uh, you know, help at the camp, and so on. Uh, so please do keep her and her children and grandchildren in your prayers. And um, also I ask for, uh, well, Anna Rajagopal. Anna is uh, very, very ill. A young lady just graduated college. And now she's uh, struck, stricken with double pneumonia. And it's, it's really uh, affected her so badly. She had to be anointed and receive extra function. Um, and the doctors are really trying to reverse this. I guess she's holding her own right now and just uh, not getting worse. But she's not getting that much better either. So... Uh, please do keep Anna in your prayers. Please also, Mr. Sapp, uh, Jonathan Sapp, um, still struggling with a uh, uh, an illness that has plagued him for the last couple of months. So uh, we need to get him back at his feet and back in the classroom. Um, there's also Dr. Michael Zanon and uh, uh, David Nelson and uh, my senior handworker, all of whom need prayers and uh, of course, Cheryl Johnson, and uh, there are many, many others they could name. Well, of course, always Paul Riley and his family. Please keep them in your prayers as well. So uh, there's a long, long list I could name. I remember them in the altar. Our Blessed Mother keeps them in her Immaculate Heart. I know all of them, every one of them. I don't have to name them all to her because she knows them better than I. But uh, I do ask you to pray for all of those on the Immaculate Heart of Mary prayer list. And uh, I thank you already. And I'm sure there are others I should be mentioning now. Uh, but as I say, 
there would be no end to the list <laughs> yeah. uh, if I did, but it's not necessary because I know when you pray for them, God knows who they are, and He will tell you, He will bless them because of you and your charity. Okay. We'll do that. Thank you, Father. Um, perhaps uh, we could start with some uh, viewer email, Father. We had a great question about indulgences, and one of our viewers wrote in and said to uh, to gain a plenary, or, uh, I'm sorry, to gain a partial indulgence. Uh, she says, do I have to know that the prayer I'm saying has an indulgence? Do I have to make the intention of getting the indulgence? If so, can I make a general intention in the morning for the entire day? And is there anything else that is required to gain the partial indulgence? Well, generally, yes, there has to be the intention to gain what indulgences are there, um, are offered. And if one doesn't know whether the indulgence, the prayer is an indulgence prayer or not, one could check the recolta. Um, if they don't have a copy of the Recolta, I, I, I imagine online research, although I don't recommend people spending too much time doing that, uh, because of the other baggage on the internet, you know. But um, there are, are ways of finding out if the prayer is, is indulgence by the church. If, uh, in any case, if one goes in with a general intention each day to gain what indulgences are offered, then that would suffice. Uh, but there has to be at least the... Um, the general intention to uh, offer whatever indulgence prayers there are with that intention of getting the indulgence. Okay, very good. Uh, simple enough. Uh, as far as I know, I mean, other than, yeah. you know, offering the, the prayers and active faith and hope and charity, love for God, uh, there are no other requirements. It would have to be in the city of grace. Of course, I, I imagine it goes without saying, but because of that, it should be said. <laughs> well, we'd have to be in the city of grace to gain that. Okay. But uh, that's the baseline. Okay. All right. Uh, Father, question about the social media use. Uh, very relevant topic today. Uh, had a viewer write in um, this email. They say, regarding the use of social media by a traditional Catholic, assuming he or she has the proper understanding of the three things necessary to make a sin mortal, is it a mortal sin to post pictures of themselves or others in immodest dress or behaving indecently? Should one delete these pictures and go to confession before receiving Holy Communion? Is it a sin mortal or venial to follow people who post pictures like this? Is it a sin to like these indecent posts, giving the impression that you think the posts are okay? She says well, this, perhaps we could take this one at a time. Yeah. So <laughs> this, this is a widespread web entangling us Catholics, and your mm -hmm. guidance is very much appreciated. Okay, there are a series of questions here, right? Yeah. And the first one is to post? Yeah, the first one is, uh, uh, is it a mortal sin to post pictures of themselves or others in a modest dress or behaving indecently? In itself, yes, it would be. I mean, if by immodest you mean provocative and... Uh, again, by indecent you mean immoral, if somebody's acting immorally or suggestively uh, such that it would uh, affect, uh, you know, even a normal person in such a way that it would uh, be a scandal to them. In other words, uh, you know, be a prurient interest to them and awaken all you know, desires of uh, things that are immoral, uh, fornication, adultery, uh, and so on. If it's the type of thing that would lead to that, it definitely would be a mortal sin to post those things. And uh, because it would be a sin of scandal. Then mm -hmm. the next question should... Not only a sin of scandal, but it would be as many sins of scandal as people who actually indulged in it and were affected badly by it. And Father, should one delete these pictures and go to confession before <clears throat> receiving Holy Communion? I would say yes, they should. They would have to do that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's uh, what I'd tell them in confession. Um, is it a sin to follow people who post pictures like this? Uh, yes, because you're exposing yourself to it and you're also encouraging them to do it. Um, and then is it a sin 
either Immortal or Vingelsen to like these indecent posts, giving the impression that you think the posts Most are Most definitely, right. because again, you're encouraging them to do this. You're approving of it. Yeah. You're giving an official approval of it. It's wrong. Yeah. What, All of these are ways of cooperating in evil, by the yeah. way. Um, what about the question of mortal or venial sin, Father? You said objectively um, these things can be a mortal sin. Um, could you explain that a little bit more? Is What's the difference between a, an objective mortal sin and, and a subjective? Well, uh, you know, as she, or whoever the, the writer is there, they say there are three conditions for mortal sin, right? Yeah. There has to be something gravely immoral. Uh, materially, it has to be gravely immoral to do this, okay? And one has to realize that it's gravely immoral, and one has to will it anyway. And give full consent to it, even though, for example, somebody, somebody were to say, "Well, I'm going to steal, you know, a million dollars. I'm going to murder somebody, or I'm going to uh, seduce somebody, or whatever." I mean, these are all involving mortal sins. And uh, so, the matter of the sacrament—I'm uh, sorry—the matter of the sin is something gravely immoral, and uh, they would have to know it's gravely immoral, and they would have to give full consent to it, and saying, "I don't care. I'm going to go do it anyway." Um, so, uh, if those conditions are met, and I believe they are met, in terms of the material gravity of it, of what you've described here, uh, then uh, if one knows that it is gravely immoral, and one wills it, gives full consent to it anyway, there would be more to sin. Is it but uh, you see, if someone does not know it is gravely immoral, yeah, is that possible? <clears throat> it is unfortunately possible today because uh, of ignorance, and uh, people are not only not taught that it is gravely immoral, but sometimes you have even <clears throat> priests and religious in the classroom instructing them that it's no big deal. And I mean, let's face it, you can look at Francis himself. And Francis himself, right, the, the modernist in chief, the Novus Ordo, is telling you that, that adultery is, uh, it, it's, it's, it's not the type of thing that would keep you from receiving the Eucharist, right? Um, and it's not the, the type of thing for which you would have to deny giving somebody Holy Communion. And so the whole level of sexual morality has been so degraded and notably by the clergy, unfortunately, by the clergy of the New Order Church, that it is possible for people today to be ignorant of this. And it's sad to say, even traditional Catholics, even children raised in traditional Catholic families, themselves might um, not know it, or if they're uh, confronted with the gravity of it, they might uh, resist it and say, well, I don't accept that, and just adamantly say, no, it can't be true, you're just exaggerating, you're being very prudish or puritanical or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, just because of the society in which we live. Is, is there the society in which we live, though, if, if children are conceived in, in uh, you know, and they're inconvenient to your, uh, to your uh, lifestyle, then it's permitted to go ahead and kill the child. Most of our traditional Catholic young people would realize that. <clears throat> but for some reason, uh, some of them don't seem to make the connection between immodest dressed and moral behavior, indecent behavior, and the fact that actually children result from, you know, uh, um, <laughs> inter sexual relations. So they, um, they don't seem to be making the connection between the, the immodesty and the indecent behavior and the fact that children are being born um, who are not wanted and actually put to death because of it. Yeah. 
Is there such a thing as uh, culpable ignorance, Father? Do you think that is ever is ever the case? Where there is supine ignorance. Uh, there's ignorance such that somebody uh, basically has the idea. Well, I don't really know. I'm not sure, and I don't want to know because if I knew the answer was no, uh, this that I shouldn't be doing this. If I knew the answer was such that it's a mortal sin, uh, then I I would still go ahead and do it anyway. So at least this way, I I have still have the excuse that I don't know. But they're avoiding finding out the truth. Mm. They make no effort to find out the truth because it would be, quote, inconvenient to them. Yeah. Wouldn't change their behavior, though. Father, what could, uh, what could traditional Catholics who do actually realize the gravity of the situation, they see, like this uh, viewer says, how this really is a really serious problem today. Um, they see this problem. They want to do something about it. They want to mm. inform these, these poor people that what they're doing is wrong. Mm. What what can they do? How can they prudently go about Well, that? if they're on social media and they see this, they should actually weigh in and say this is wrong. Not in a, in a scorching, scathing sort of way, or in a holier-than-thou sort of way, you know, as so if they are, um, you know, hurling lightning bolts. But they should just tell them in a charitable way that you may not realize it, that, you know, you're, you're dressing very provocatively and... Uh, um, and I ask you, please stop. It's it's not good for your soul and souls of others, and it's certainly not pleasing to God. Um, now, you know, someone who dresses that way will either ignore them or come back at them, uh, generally not with gratitude. <laughs> Thank you for pointing that out. I did not know. Although, you never know. By the grace of God, somebody might uh, face the fact. But uh, they would be exposing themselves to uh, ridicule, and uh, possibly worse, but it would be the right thing to do. I mean, when the apostles went out, they, they had to address these things. Um, it was just like the, the whole world was Sodom and Gomorrah back then. And uh, the apostles had to go out and they had to address these things. And they uh, were willing to do so for our Lord's sake, and they paid the price for it. Yeah. Okay, very good. Uh, another viewer email, Father, she... Uh, Spear wrote in and said, this is probably a general catechism question, but can't seem to find the answer. When uh, one is doing a novena and they skip a day, should they start over the novena or just pick up the next day where they left off? Depends on the terms of the novena. I mean, if it's, if it's a novena that they have set for themselves, and said, okay, I'm going to offer a novena of, you know, rosary every day for nine days, um, then they can determine the terms, okay? If they skip a day, uh, they can determine, well, okay, I'll make that up you know, add a, add a day and, uh, and um, provide for that. If it's a novena that is actually called for by the church or something officially set down as being con continuous, uh, then, yeah, when they break the, uh, the content continuity of it all, they would, they would uh, not fulfill the terms of the, of the novena. Um, so, you know, there are actually novenas that, are, that people sign on to and they're not determined by them um they are novenas set for example for the days leading up to major feast days to pentecost novena to the holy ghost for pentecost or for christmas and so on and uh, those are literally nine consecutive days leading up to the feast day right <clears throat> so uh that's the term of the novena is that you Pray each of those nine days for that for that uh, preparation for that feast day. But as I say, I mean, if if uh, one sets for himself a, a novena that he's fulfilling for some purpose, 
some personal purpose. He can term, set the terms of that any way he wishes. It's, it's all for God's glory. So. Okay. Uh, would Father recommend praying the little yeah. office of Our Lady to people who find it difficult to finish the divine office prayers, specifically mothers? And if so, what version should we pray? Well, uh, yes, by all means, if you can, pray the little office of Our Blessed Lady each day. That's wonderful. Um, and as far as the version goes, well, I don't know how many versions there are. Um, the only version I'm aware of is the traditional office of Our Blessed Lady. If the Novus Ordo has come out with a new, uh, new and improved modernist version of the, uh, of the little office of Our Blessed Mother, avoid it like the plague and uh, just simply go back before, you know, 62, whatever it is, and, and pray the traditional office of uh, little office of Our Blessed Lady. If you can pray it in Latin, fine, then you know that's going to be traditional. <laughs> if you can pray it in English, fine, just make sure that it's, uh, it it's, uh, corresponds to the real little office of Our Lady going back in Catholic tradition. So. Okay. Um, I'll just paraphrase here, Father, because we've had several viewers ask about this um, question of the possibility of a conditional baptism, uh, specifically within the Society of St. Pius X. Um, mm -hmm. Multiple viewers have said that uh, for one reason or another they felt that maybe their uh, their initial baptism was was dubious and doubtful and, and should they should have a conditional baptism, but uh, on several occasions I said they've approached uh, SSPX priests about this and they've been assured that their baptism was valid and they um, there's no need to do a conditional baptism. So for someone who uh, is, is in this situation and still feels this doubt about his baptism, um, what what should he do? Should he just stick with this advice of the SSPX priest who tells them that it is certainly valid, there's no need to question it? Um, should he seek a conditional baptism elsewhere? What what would you recommend? Well, I think the uh, Society of St. Pius X, the SSPX, is much more, shall we say, accommodating uh, to the Novus Ordo and the modernists. Um, certainly more accommodating than the Society of St. Pius V. We don't trust the modernists. Uh, but when St. Pius X says that modernists and modernism, modernism is the synthesis of all heresies, uh, no wonder we, we don't trust. Uh, we shouldn't. Uh, we find the SSPX to be a, a, a bit too uh, open to the Novus Ordo, unfortunately. Um, now, um, if the individual you're talking about has uh, some nagging doubts about the validity of the baptism, because, uh, let's face it, I mean, baptism is essential, right? <clears throat> Our Lord says so, St. John chapter 3, verse 5, and uh, the tradition of the Church ex expresses the importance of sacramental baptism. <clears throat> if someone has reason to doubt about his baptism, or even if he's uneasy about it, just because it was done in the Novus Ordo. That can be a justification to go ahead and to conditionally baptize, even for the peace of mind of the person involved. Um, you know, Dom Prummer, Prummer has said that uh, even a slight doubt uh, could justify that, you know, uh, conditional baptism. But one can get carried away, too, and begin to, uh, you know, um, invent uh, doubts. So the Church is very careful about that because she says that you cannot be baptized uh, legitimately and validly more than one time. 
so once you're baptized, you remain baptized forever. It imprints a character on the soul, which doesn't fade. Um, and so the church does say that there have, have to be certain reasons and uh, sufficient reasons to conditionally baptize. Um, there are those who have expressed doubts about the new baptismal ceremony, um, which does, by the way, have the, uh, the traditional form. I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the, the Holy Spirit, they say. They don't, and they add Amen, too, which is not in the traditional form, in the Latin rite. Um, most would say that that would not be questionable. But there's the surrounding baptismal rite, and there's the general idea in the Novus Ordo that it is uh, a matter of initiating somebody into it, like an organization, more than uh, administered to, uh, uh, you know, to remit the original sin and personal sins. Um, they look upon it as merely kind of an external rite to initiate somebody, right? So they call, even call it the rite of initiation. That's a red flag. There are those who read the, um, the introduction to the new rite in the actual rituales of the new order. And they look at that and they say, well, this is uh, supposed to initiate us into the Novus Ordo, essentially, is what, what they're saying in the, in the, in the uh, introduction to the rite. And so, uh, you know, there are those who find that all um, uh, not reassuring, okay? It, it, it distresses them and makes them think, well, there might, might be nothing wrong with this. And um, so th there can be sufficient grounds for someone to um, be concerned about it. And if they were to approach a priest and the priest saw that the individual was genuinely concerned about it, <coughs> and um, not frivolously, right, um, but um, had reasons that he could actually adduce um, that even, at least to him, were significant. Then I, I think the right thing to do would be for the priest to conditionally baptize for the sake of peace of soul of that individual. Um, if uh, society, you know, the problem with the society of St. Pius X is, though, they seem to pretty much carte blanche accept the uh, validity of the New Orthodox sort of baptisms and even now the Novus Ordo ordinations, because I understand they have priests ordained in the New Order <clears throat> who are serving their people, which we would never do. We would never allow. Um, we would always require them to be conditionally ordained in the traditional rite. So um, it doesn't surprise me that a person would ask that question. It wouldn't surprise me to find that a person would have that problem. Uh, that they would have doubts about their own baptisms, go to a society of St. Pius X priest and basically be refused. Um, if the question is, how do I get them to do it? Um, because I want it and they don't. <laughs> I don't think you can get them to do it. You know, um, If they are convinced, convince themselves that they can't do it because they think it is forbidden by the church, uh, then, um, you know, if, if they're taking a stand in principle, or what they think is principle, you're not going to induce them to do it if they think it's a matter of conscience that they can't. 
But I, what, what was the question exactly? I, I think it came down to that, didn't it? Just, that's essentially what they said there. Yeah, Could you yeah. read that again? Too? Well, I paraphrased it because we had several of oh, them, but okay. um, just the one that the one that I had, they just said that, uh, how do I ask an SSP expert well, to condition How do I ask yeah. them to do it? Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess <laughs> if you really have serious doubts, that's, that's it is, it's causing you a uh, problem in conscience, then just, yeah, I think you just have to tell them that. Right. And um, they'll ask you the reasons why. Um, hopefully they'll be concerned for your own peace of mind and take that into consideration. Yep. Okay, it's a uh, tough situation. Um, another question, Father, could you possibly explain when, how, and what changed from the traditional Catholic calendar to the modern calendar? Okay, well, there's a lot there, okay. Just in general, okay, they changed the rankings of the feasts. Um, instead of, you know, this rather elaborate ranking of feasts from doubles of the first class with the privileged octaves uh, down through doubles of the first class of our Lord, our Blessed Mother, doubles of the second class for the Apostles, <clears throat> and then just major doubles and doubles. All of, those, all of those expressions actually are tied to the sacred liturgy, and they all have application. <clears throat> to explain the application, well, I don't know if we have time here, uh, because the liturgy has been here for a long, long time and developed over a long, long time. <clears throat> but all of those expressions, even though they seem rather mysterious, um, they all actually correspond to something real in the prayers of the liturgy. <clears throat> Then after, uh, you know, double majors and then doubles and then they had semi-doubles and uh, simplexes and commemorations and so on, <clears throat> they actually overturned all of that, which had developed organically through the centuries. <clears throat> um, but they were basically overturning the liturgy, the prayers themselves at the same time. So when they overturned the calendar, and just started designating as, uh, you know, classes, feasts of the class, one first class, second class, third class, fourth class. Um, this was a portent of things to come, that they were actually going to then, having changed all those classifications, go in and start, uh, um, quote-unquote, simplifying the liturgy, which meant basically throwing things out of the past, and replacing them with other things that uh, have no historical root in the Catholic Church. Um, so they did away with octaves, largely. Uh, you know, octave day, octaves were a celebration of a great feast, and then the feast would be commemorated for the following week, okay? And then there were an octave day because of the greatness of the feast. <clears throat> and they suppressed those, essentially. Suppressed many vigils, which were a preparation of the great feasts, too. So what they were doing was, in a sense, uh, bulldozing the, the liturgy, the observance of the liturgy in terms of the feast days of uh, our Lord, the Blessed Mother, the saints. And um, they were bulldozing them for the sake of introducing something quite new. It wasn't just to make them go away. They wanted to replace them. And the changing in the calendar into John the 23rd back in the early 60s was a a prerequisite for that. So they, uh, they, they were uh, dismantling some of the, um, we might even call them external structures of the liturgy, 
before going actually into the liturgy and uh, in a sense um, um, but should I say reconfiguring the, the liturgy, the liturgical prayers themselves. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, maybe There's, There are whole studies about this. It was done back then. Yeah. One can actually look at the documents online. I'm sure they are there of John the 23rd and his new calendar. And uh, you, can, you can find lists of uh, the things that were changed by John the 23rd back then. But again, as I say, it was all... Uh, Sort of like you might say, remodeling the facade or the the structure um, for the sake of going in and actually um, gutting the interior. And that's what they did with the liturgy. Wow. Okay. Well, maybe last viewer email, Father, we had a viewer write in and uh, say, I was wondering whether Father Jenkins would mind addressing the phenomenon of transgenderism, its origin, and whether or not this can be classified as demonic influence. It is demonic. There's no doubt about it. It's a, an effort to, to uh, basically um, defy God and His order. Um, so it is gravely sinful. And um, the, the whole idea of transgenderism actually goes back a long, long way. I mean, back into the pagan cultures of Greece and uh, into, into, uh, largely into Islamic culture too, so-called. Um, uh, it involves children greatly. Uh, uh, children in Greece and ancient Rome, um, boys largely, were abused, and um, it was considered to be pretty much culturally acceptable. It was not considered to be an aberration, uh, but that's what you would expect from paganism. Um, I mean. St. Paul says it. He says uh, the gods of the pagans, or the Gentiles, are devils. And of course, how do you worship a devil? If you're going to worship a devil, how does a demon want to be worshipped? Well, you worship the true God by virtue and goodness, and you worship a devil by sin and evil. You worship the true God by order and honoring the order that he created, and you worship a devil by disorder and uh, by perversion. And this perversion was uh, pretty much rife among the, among the pagans. Why? Well, for the same reason that people abort their children today. They want to have their fun, but they don't want the consequences of giving life and the responsibility for, for uh, not only generating life, but for nurturing that life. Uh, they don't want to commit to that vocation, it is a divine voc- it is a vocation from God to give life and nurture that life. I mean, the very first command that God gave to any human beings, He gave to the first, our first parents, and that command was increase, multiply, and fill the earth. Give me life, right? And He gave them, He invested in them the power of giving life. Life that that investment of God's power was so is so phenomenal that God would not only have to invest in them His creative power. But he, he actually invested his redemptive power because every life that he give, gave, he knew he would have to suffer for. He didn't have to suffer for them in creating them. Um, but he would have to suffer for them to redeem them. And so in giving us that power of generating life, um, he gave us tremendous power even over himself. Even over himself. But that's what a loving God does. 
the expression of the ancients is bonum est diffusivum sui. Bonum, the good wants to share itself. And that's truly the true of God um, uh, to the ultimate degree that God, God is ultimate goodness, he is perfect goodness, infinite goodness, and he does want to share that. Therefore, here we are, you and I and the rest of us. God wants to share that. He created us in his image to know him and to know his love and to be loved by us and to be able to love him in return. That's not true of devils. Devils don't know. They don't know what love is. They're all so turned in on upon themselves, literally self-centered. Uh, that's, that's all they know. That's all they can think about. They can't understand anything else than that. And so it is when they worship devils and the pagan peoples, this is what they're worshiping. And this is, um, therefore, dictates how they worship. And they worship by perversion. So we shouldn't be surprised to find in the ancient peoples a, a, uh, not an acceptance, even a sense of glorification and an institutionalization of children, boys, for the most part, who are um, Catholics who are actually made to be dressed up as girls and to be used as girls. <clears throat> and um, they can't conceive, of course, so there's no problem with bringing life into the world and having to, them to deal with that. The only reason why they would be um, concerned about that is because they, they needed children to sacrifice to their devil gods, like to Moloch and so on. But they had enough of those all too, from their slave girls and, and and so on, that they, they could offer to their devils to serve them, even in terms of the abortion of that day. Um, so the, the history of it goes back very far, but it's all associated with paganism, and it's all associated with devil worship. And so we come to our own day where they've gone this madness. It is being actually financed by the billionaires. The billionaires largely have given themselves over to complete sexual license. And uh, they feel that they are beyond any code of morality. And, and basically have said so. I mean, the, the, the spokesman for the uh, behind the scenes for the World Economic Forum, um, the, the, the brains behind the outfit, supposedly, the one they point to as their philosopher is Noel Harari. Uh, and uh, Noel Yuval Harari, who is a homosexual, atheist, Jewish historian, who is the uh, basic theoretician, who says that uh, human rights are complete myth, just as God is a complete myth, he says. And we are the new gods, and we have the digital power to control mankind, and not only their actions, but their words and their thoughts. He said, we now have that power. And so we are going to use that power to create a new world according to our designs. In that new world, uh, there's only enough room for one billion people uh, because one billion people can live happy lives. Any more than that, not so. So uh, seven billion people have to go away somehow. Um, the World Economic Forum spokespeople have said that they'd like seven billion people to go away peacefully uh, and they'll find a way to do it, okay? Sterilizing them or whatever so they can't reproduce and they will die out. But they, that's their, their stated intention, is to do exactly that. And um, homosexuality is a very important part of this. Uh, they want to sterilize the human race. They want to stop the propagation of the human race. 
And so artificial birth control and uh, uh, using medications and uh, other devices that they can spread among the population to sterilize them. This is all part of their program. Um, and of course, even down to transgenderism, it all has a place to create a kind of gender dysphoria and confusion. And the more, the more they propagate it, of course, the more instances of it you find. I mean, even the Generation Z now, the polls are, are showing, um, Generation Z has produced uh, a crop of uh, young people, 25% of whom are claiming to be so-called LGBTQIA+. Okay, 25% of them. It's like every generation doubles, right, in the number of those who are claiming to to have this this uh, dysfunction here and uh, this perversion. And of course, you see the the consequence of this. All of it leads to um, the destruction of life, or simply not giving life to begin with. Um, <clears throat> very highly disease-ridden. Um, high risk of suicide in, in this uh, demographic, but also not producing children at all. So it all fits in with the, with the well, the, the World Economic Forum and the Communists. They, they make no bones about it. By the year 2030, they say it. I mean, they, they turn it into a motto. You will own nothing and you will be happy. That's what they say. You will own nothing because they will have taken it all and you will be happy. All one billion of you, the other rest, the rest of you have to go away. Um, so, uh, you know, this would seem too fantastic to believe. People would have to be uh, denouncing you as some sort of a, a major science fiction illusionist, delusionalist, uh, uh, what should I say, uh, conspiracy theorist, but for the fact they are actually openly, openly saying this to the whole world. This is making no secret about it. Why? Because they think they've got so much control now, they don't have to mask it in any way. Um, so th this is their plan, and they are sticking to it um, because they think they can. And, uh, you know, you get these world leaders, uh, notably in, in, our own, in our own government, who are all on board with this. At least they're bought bought into it or bought by it and um, they are doing the will of all these people and part of it is this transgenderism. Um, the, you know, there are studies done of how this transgenderism became a thing, as it were, today and they all lead back to massive, massive inflow of cash from the billionaires into various American institutions and other institutions around the world to propagate this. Okay, they're paying people to push this, and they're paying the right people because they know how to do these these things. They know how to market this. Okay, uh, and they're very effective in what they do. But it's it's more than a human wisdom. There's a diabolical, quote unquote, wisdom behind it. Um, the devil is not wise insofar as he doesn't, under, he doesn't know the truth and reality, or he doesn't accept it, but he's clever. But he's very clever, and he knows how to manipulate things to accomplish his own purposes. And that's what we see behind all of this. So if the question is, uh, where did this come from? That's where it's coming from. It's coming from hell. 
And if the question is, uh, you know, who's behind it, well, that's basically what it comes down to. The devil, his friends on earth, or whom he's enriched. With, uh, the, the billionaire's club, as it were, okay? Mm. Um, it's interesting that uh, we call them the plutocrats. Plutocrats. Uh, interesting title. We've talked about it a little bit before. Uh, the plutocrats basically are those who are governing, right? And uh, Pluto comes from the, the god of the Greeks, the underworld. The god of the underworld, Pluto, right? And um, <clears throat> they refer to uh, the plutocrats because they've enriched themselves with the riches of the earth. They look upon gold, silver, these are the, the mining riches. And that's why they actually consider the, the plutocrats to have enriched themselves uh, and earn the name of plutocrats because they've enriched themselves by digging in the earth, you know, and mining the earth, going under, under the ground. Uh, truly an underground operation. Um, <clears throat> so the name fits in more ways than one, I'm sorry to say. Um, but in any case, uh, we obviously have to resist this and have to try to shield our own children from this insanity, because it is that. Um, it, wasn't cons it was considered insanity, always, by Christians everywhere, who always denounced it. And um, nowadays, even for uh, denouncing that, you're putting yourself at risk, because, uh, again, what I've just said is actually true. <laughs> this is what's happening, and this is where it's coming from. What, what can a Catholic do who lives in this type of society where he sees all of these things? Should he just focus all of his energies on shielding his, his family from Yeah, well, he has to shield his children from influences like that, from can he entertainment, positive to combat friendships, that? and social influences like that. He has to shield himself as children from this. But he also has to raise them in such a way in his own home that they understand clearly the gender differences, which is what the moderns decry as, as you know, of, as tyranny, you know, you're tyrannizing over your children. And if you, <clears throat> in some states even, if you try to protect your children from this and do not go along with this, uh, if, if your son or daughter comes home from school <clears throat> and a teacher has convinced him or her that he is a she and she is a he, um, and you, you tell your child, no, you don't accept that, you can, you can be jailed for it. Get a child taken away from you because you oppose it. And so what do you do? Well, you have to get away. You have to get out of that state. I mean, what else can you do when they say, <clears throat> uh, we are influencing your children this way and there's nothing you can do about it. We're doing it secretly, behind your back, and we have every right to do it. We're protected by law in doing this. And by the time you find out about it, it's going to be too late. And if you dare resist it, we'll throw you in jail or take your child from you. <clears throat> and this is what the law is saying. So um, you have to, first of all, uh, fight that the laws be right and true and just. And uh, in the states where the laws are uh, basically attuned to devil worship and are marked uh, to, um, well, basically mark your children, um, then you have to escape from such a society and, and get somewhere where you can raise the children as you know you should. Uh, but husband and wife, Mom and dad have to be the primary influence in the children's lives, and they have to teach the children God's plan and God's design and what it is to be uh, a, a male and a female, what it is to be 
a man or woman, boy and a girl, they have to show them what it really means to be a mother and a wife, a husband and a father. And their relationship that they have with each other is the key, that they show their children, they demonstrate to them day by day what it is to be not only a good husband, but the best husband you can be. And not only a good wife, but the best wife you can possibly be, right? Give your very best. Not only a good father, but be the best father you can possibly be. And the same with a good mother being the best mother. And so um, when they marry, they have to marry that with that in mind. That that's what they want to provide for their children. Uh, that's the start. And from that moment on, they have to live that out and, and stay true to that. True to that purpose. Okay, very good. Um, Father, maybe just a couple of current events rather quickly, if we could. Um, did you have any, any follow-up on the uh, kind of drama, I guess, <laughs> across the river? You recently referenced this, um, where in uh, Covington, or I guess uh, Park Hill, the um, Our Lady of Lourdes Parish, where they offered the uh, 1962 Latin Mass um, under the auspices of, of the Novus Ordo, um, the Covington bishop had, had uh, kind of shut them down. They removed the two priests. Yeah, from. the new bishop of uh, Covington, as a man, Eifert, who's in his 50s, and uh, he took umbrage at a sermon given by one of the two priests. Yeah. I, I, I listened to the sermon. It sounded pretty lightweight to me, you know, <laughs> but uh, evidently he, uh, the bishop said, no, we can't tolerate this. I think he said the new order liturgy is irrelevant. It's banal. I mean, I think that's very... That's being generous, even, right? But the bishop said, well, I can't have this. So basically, he put them on ice, said, you cannot function publicly in my diocese. Um, and so he didn't kick them out. Though, but he, um, he'd actually given them the status of a personal parish, oddly enough. But now he took that away. And uh, he's going to replace it now. He, he said now that this community that was gathering at this Our Lady of Lourdes, personal parish uh, that has been functioning for a few years now, I understand, are going to have to transfer. They're going to share St. Agnes, I think it is, some kind of St. Agnes community. That's going to be their facility. That's where they're going to have to meet from now on. And he's going to appoint a, some kind of diocesan clergyman to go in and offer the traditional mass for them. Now, I fully expect, because of the problem he had with the, the Father Sean and Father Shannon, both of whom were, were ordained in the Novus Ordo anyway, so there's already a, a question mark there. But he's, he's going to replace them with another clergyman, and um, what he objected to in them is that they rejected the New Order, and the New Order liturgy, and they wouldn't say it. So I'm sure he's going to, I expect he's going to find a clergyman who says the New Order liturgy, the New Mass, as well as the traditional Mass. So he's going to be kind of a hybrid, modernist Catholic. Say the Novus Ordo. So he's not going to be criticizing the Novus Ordo. He's going to be saying it. At the same time, he's going to be going in and, and doing the, um, the, the quasi-traditional Latin Mass, the 1962 liturgy, uh, to keep those people happy. But I hope they see through that. And I hope they realize, well, wait a minute. <coughs> this is exactly the problem. This is a compromise. And we're done compromising. Uh, this is our faith. This is what we believe. Right? We're not going to compromise this. And I hope they, they do not fall into that trap. Because it is a trap. Those who 
pretend that they can practice the traditional Catholic faith within the Novus Ordo are actually going into a trap. Um, some of them knowingly. But part of the problem is they've been, they've been hoodwinked. They've been convinced that you have to <coughs> operate within the Novus Ordo structure to be legitimate traditional Catholics. That if you leave the Novus Ordo structure, you can't, you're not allowed to be Catholic and practice the traditional Catholic faith unless you have their approval and you're moving within their <coughs> domain. The problem is, modernism is the complexest of all heresies, and um, it, it is necessarily inimical to the traditional Catholic faith. So um, it's almost like an autoimmune disease, you know, with the Novus Ordo. Um, and part of the, the, the error about that is where people are telling them, well, you know, the church is a visible organization, and unless you're with Francis, you know, the, the church is not a visible organization with you. And so you must be outside the church. You're losing the church if you leave the visible church. Well, they're pretending that their organization is all that there is of the visible church with their Novus Ordo, their new mass, new sacraments, the new catechisms, and all the rest, you know. But that, that, is, a, that is a falsehood. I mean, uh, as far as Francis goes, in de denying that Francis is a pope, or at least even questioning that he is the pope, they're not leaving the visibility of the church behind. I mean, popes have been elected and died and been elected and died and been elected, you know, literally well, 260 times in the course of the church's history. And whenever a pope died, the church didn't become invisible. The church did not lose her visibility over that because there was no reigning pope. I mean, the, uh, the authority that Christ gave to Peter, he gave to all of the apostles. They're in the hierarchy. And there are always going to be Catholic bishops. There are always going to be real Catholic bishops who still have the faith. Even if it be a minority. Um, you know, we have to get over the idea that the church always has to be this worldwide organization with, you know, a billion people and with all of the prestige and all of the, all of the, uh, the visibility that people associate with, you know, having properties and having, you know, worldwide recognition. St. Paul said it very clearly in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that there would be a great apostasy at some point. There would be a massive falling away from the faith. It's always been understood by Catholics that this was going to happen. So I'm not saying that this is necessarily it. I'm saying that it is possible. And Catholics are saying, well, it's not possible. And if what traditional Catholics are saying is true, then the church, you know, they're saying that the church has lost her visibility and they're denying Christ. That's not true at all. Absolutely. It's the opposite of the truth. Uh, the fact is, there, there is forecast by heaven, not just by our imaginings here on earth. There's forecast a, a great apostasy. And uh, again, much of what is the visible at the church uh, will, you know, will not be there in the, in the sense that we had. But the visibility of the church will still very much be there as it was in the time of the apostles. In the time of the persecutions of the uh, of the uh, Roman Empire, um, and the Church uh, among traditional Catholics certainly maintains that visibility. Remember, visibility and uh, also apostolic succession both absolutely depend upon the continuity of the faith, and this is a major problem that the Novus Ordo people have to face that Francis does not have continuity with the faith. 
Quite the contrary. He is constantly contradicting the traditional faith of the past. And um, virtually everything he says is a denial of the church's traditional teaching. So, um, you know, when they talk about the visibility of the church, they, they have to think about the essential you know, qualities or characteristics that make the church the church. And the first is the true faith and the continuity of the faith. This is why people now are, are questioning Francis and his new order, of which he is the pontiff. And uh, if I can just finish up the, the thought with this, uh, if it's any comfort to those who are, have, are squeamish about this and saying, well, gee, if I let go of the Novus Ordo, am I, am I denying the visibility of the church and the faith? And am I opening myself up to be schismatic? Look, the very least one can say today is that there is a, an enormous confusion uh, out there among the faithful. And the confusion is actually being sown by the clergy, notably by Francis himself. Um, the closest thing we can come to in, in history, well, after the Unharian heresy, is the great Western schism. Uh, when there was, you know, after the Babylonian captivity of the church in the early 1300s, the popes returned to Rome, and uh, the very first one that was elected there, Urban VI, was elected by a majority of French cardinals who then decided they didn't like him. And they went back to Avignon, France, and they elected somebody else. This was very confusing. When the, the majority of the, council, uh, the cardinals who elected one man then go back to their own home con hometown country, France, and elect somebody else, the same cardinals, of course it's going to be confusing. And then when people try to rectify the problem by getting, you know, Urban and his successor in Rome and the, uh, the, 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 the Avignon Pope, as it was, to resign. They agreed to resign if they elected in council another. And they did elect John in Pisa, and then the other two would not resign, and now they had three of them. I mean, you know, the Catholic people were certainly beginning to wonder, how is it possible to resolve this problem? Is there any way humanly possible to solve this? Because everything we do just makes it worse. And, you know, that's a very humbling thing for us. That's actually good for us to realize that there are things simply that are so beyond our power that we cannot fix this. It's a reminder that this is God's church, and he and he alone has the power to fix these things. But that's where faith comes in, where we don't trust our own our own devices, we, uh, you know, St. Paul says in the epistle, uh, we've, we've read last Sunday in this, uh, uh, be not wise in your own conceits. Well, that's what happens when we're wise in our own conceits and we start making things worse when we're trying to remedy a problem with our human, human uh, cleverness and we get ourselves into trouble, deeper and deeper into trouble. And that's how it was back then during the great, great Great Western schism in the late 1300s into the early 1400s. Mm. And of course, God knew exactly what he was going to do. And after humbling everybody and basically showing, look, this is what happens to you when you rely on your own wits. And you are not practicing your faith and being the Catholics you should be. And now I'm, go I'm going to step in. And he did with the Council of Constance. 
And uh, he led the way, and out of the castle of Constance came the man who was recognized ultimately universally by all the Catholics in the world, Martin V. And he was a great pope. And he was exactly the man needed at that moment. You could tell that this was divine doing here. And what was humanly impossible to solve. When it was solved, it's as though everyone said, well, gee, we didn't see that coming, but now we understand, you know. Yeah, this is exactly how it had to be done. And um, I, I fear that we're pretty much going through the same, the same process here, you know. We, um, we have to realize that just as at that time, um, you know, we had good people, even saints, following different men as popes, uh, because of the confusion, um, yes, I'm sure that those who followed the Pope in, in Rome, and he was, as it turned out, the, the real successor of Peter, and he was the real Pope. Urban VI was, was the real Pope at the time, even though the cardinals, the French cardinals, rebelled against him and elected somebody else, it didn't change the fact that he was legitimately elected and he was the true Pope. Um, but the uh, the fact is, even though they might have anathematized each other, the church itself, after God himself intervened and rectified all of our stupidity and our foolishness, um, by in 14, 15, 14, 17, actually solving the problem, the church herself doesn't anathematize those. She has two saints who she recognizes, even at the altar, the universal calendar, St. Catherine of Siena, and St. Vincent Ferrer, who followed different men as Pope at the time. And this is a statement by the Church saying, stop anathematizing, don't anathematize each other in times of real confusion. State your case, and, uh, and, and it's why you believe this is the right thing to do. Do what you believe is the right thing to do. But be very careful about um, actually claiming to judge each other's souls over that. And this is what I fear the, uh, is happening, you know, among those who want to practice the traditional Catholic faith. I think they're, uh, they're actually almost um, being distracted by arguing about things that are beyond their ken and not focusing on the things that are most essential. Um, now, as a priest of the Society of St. Pius V, we do have very definite, definite stances on things because we believe this is the right way to go. And in every case, it's a matter of not compromising because we believe that is the right way to go. We don't anathematize people. Yes, we'd say, if you're doing this, don't come to receive communion here because you're doing that, we think that's wrong. I'm not telling you I think you're in the state of mortal sin, but I am telling you you know, that objectively, I think that what you're doing is wrong, and so I have to follow my conscience, not your conscience. But, uh, you know, to basically label this whole group as schismatics um, because uh, they're not exactly following the way we, we agree. We don't do that. We take our stand, we set the principles, and they are uncompromising, and we follow them, okay? But as far as the judgment of their souls, we have to leave that to Almighty God. I just wish we could get people to quiet down long enough to actually have the conversation. <clears throat> and, 
not basically cancel each other out, you know. Um, I think you know that, Tom. I think you know in the past that <clears throat> our priests have been willing to sit down at the table and have these conversations with these people <clears throat> and the people we disagree with and even have public debates with them, you know. Um, they don't seem interested anymore, you know. But uh, I, think it's, I think it's necessary for those who want to remain faithful to the traditional Catholic faith that we have these conversations in public or in private or both um, to really get to the heart of the matter. And um, so, anyway, um, I, there I said my piece about this <laughs> whole question about what's going across the river, going on across the river, I think is an illustration yeah, yes. of the big picture. Yeah. That in the Novus Ordo, it's impossible to practice the traditional faith within the Novus Ordo uh, because it's, they're so antithetical, Catholicism and modernism. And I think this is an illustration of that fact. And those who want to be Catholic, I think, have to, um, uh, you know, actually be willing to, to talk to each other seriously, respectfully, charitably, and address the important issues. Is that an invitation then, Father, for any... Uh... Always. Okay. <laughs> Always, Tom. Okay. All right, well, very good. Um, anything else in closing, Father? Well, just keep the faith. Not only keep it, but spread it. I know, yeah. One of, the, one of the reasons why they, they're doing the transgenderism and all the rest is they're attacking the very concept of fatherhood. When you attack the very concept of fatherhood, you attack the very relationship that you and I are meant to have with Almighty God. Okay? God is Father. He, he's revealed himself as Father. He sent his Son to us. Right? And his Son, who is his eternal Son, God begotten before for all ages, before time itself, in all eternity, is his divine son, has come to the world as our savior. And as, as the, the last gospel of the mass, the beginning of St. John's gospel says, he gave the power to become the children of God to us, right? That we can actually be adopted by God, by grace. And the enemy of God, your enemy and my enemy, does not want us to even be able to think in terms of fatherhood. They're trying to destroy the very concept of motherhood for the same reason. It's all and, and ch childhood even, they're trying to destroy that. Because their ultimate goal is to completely annihilate and pervert the very concept of fatherhood in the minds of mankind, to cut us off from the fatherhood of God. That is the, that is the objective of hell. Why? Because Satan wants us to consider ourselves his, that we belong to him, that we are his spawn. And he has to somehow sever any possible relationship we can have with the true God, our Creator, and the message of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, when he taught us to pray, Our Father. He wants to silence that. Okay. Well, Father, thanks for being here tonight. Appreciate your time. Certainly, Tom. Thank you very much. Yep. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. We pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.